About 15 years ago, maybe more, uh, I was fairly new in my faith in following Jesus, and uh, I was grappling with the, the idea of salvation. I was, I was, I mean, I knew I was saved, so I wasn't kind of questioning that, but I was, I was almost questioning God's methods. I was saying, God, surely there was another way that you could have done this, that you had to send your own son uh, to die on the cross, and God just took me through a whole journey of understanding salvation. But as I was going through this, I started to pray, and I said, God, I really want to have a revelation of this in my heart. And I was young in my faith. Uh, you're grappling through these big questions, and I think that's good. Sometimes doubts force us into a place of asking big questions, and when we get the answers, God becomes way bigger than he was before. So if you've got doubts, that's not a bad thing, because they actually lead towards faith, if you keep following that trail. And... Um, I just prayed and I said, God, would you just show me? And he, and he took me almost in like a vision, a picture. I don't know if you want to call it. It wasn't that spiritual, but I, I, had, this, I had this picture of me walking down uh, almost like a jail cell. Can you imagine if this is a jail cell here and then you have kind of convicts on both sides and they're putting their hands through the, the jail bars. Some of you do look like convicts, Warren. Um, and yeah, you kind of, you put, they're putting their hands. Where's Caleb? He also looks like a bit, he's not here today. Oh, anyway. He was at the nine. Okay. And um, so we're a family. If it's your first time here, we believe first and foremost, church is a family. So I'll pull out people's names. It's not to exclude you. It's just to show that these are my friends and we, we work. We're on family together on mission. But, um, and I had this picture of just walking down this jail cell. And at the end of the jail cell uh, was this, uh, this picture of a, an electric chair. And I knew that that was my destiny. I knew that as I walked to the end of that road, that I was going to sit down in death. And the scriptures that were coming to my mind, and God is reminding me that the wages of sin is death. And I knew that I had a clear path to death. And I got to the end of the thing, and I was just about to sit on the chair. And in that moment, Jesus comes and sits on the chair in my place and dies in my place. Clear, it was such a clear picture for me, understanding salvation. And the, the, the jail warden looks at me, he goes, now you can go free. And I walk out, and, and as I'm going out, he says, and you know, this, this man who came and stood in your place was absolutely spotless, clean, perfect, and you get everything that he was gets put into your life. Now, that is basic Christianity 101, but I had to get that. I had to get that deep in my heart that it wasn't through my works, wasn't through my effort, wasn't through anything that I could do, but it was what Jesus did by dying on the cross. And if you look at electric chairs, a modern-day version of a cross, we know the picture of the cross is, and I've shared this before, but... It was this excruciating, uh, never-ending pain. Jesus was, imagine having nails put into your wrists and into your feet. Jesus was whipped, they say, uh, 40, 50 times, and, he, and, his, and, and his ribs were exposed. There was skin that was pulled out. There was hair. There was parts of his beard. You guys have all seen the Passion of the Christ movie. I think that's quite a, an accurate portrayal of what happened. And what would happen is Jesus, was, Jesus would be hanging on the cross, and, uh, and, and every time like he would move, maybe the, maybe the scabs would come off and it would just be this excruciating pain that where they put the nails, uh, it actually was on nerves. So it would be this, it was a form of torture that the Romans invented to torture the worst of the worst. And someone said that the cross is showing humanity at its worst, but God at its best. And I, I thought it was such a powerful thing that Jesus came and he stood in my place. Everything I've done. And uh, how many of you have had to open a book of your life? We'd be like, Ooh, don't go to that page. You're not going to like what you see there. And Jesus knew that. He knew that in ourselves we did not have the ability to save ourselves. He knew within ourselves that we are, have this bent towards, towards sin, towards, towards running away from him. 
There's an old hymn that says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And even when we're following him, yet there's this bent towards something else. And I'm so grateful that Jesus came, lived a perfect, sinless life, stood in my place, died on the cross for me. And some of you are thinking, wow, that, is, that sounds like a myth and a fable. And if it's your first time here, or you've been searching the faith, that does sound crazy. But I'm going to talk about a few things a bit later, about how there's actual incredible historical evidence that in many ways trumps evidence of Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, that Jesus not only died, but he resurrected from the dead. And we get to get face to face with the evidence of who Jesus is, so we can choose to follow him or not. So, our lives are full of choices. Who we choose to marry, singles, just raise your hand quickly. (laughs) They're choosing to marry, what you choose to do with your money. A lot of us in Dubai, not including myself, I'm here for life as long as God has me here. But some of us are choosing, where do I go next? Uh, what is the next country? Do I go back to my home country? Am I developing something at home? Or do I go somewhere else? So I'm not going to retire. What is, and you're asking these questions. And life is full of choices. And I did a bit of research on choices. And they say that we, as a human being, the average human being makes up to 35,000 choices a day. And I thought, okay, that's a little bit exaggerated. So I did a bit more research. And it's obviously talking about subconscious and conscious decisions. There's, you're continually making decisions. And can we say that actually to be human is to make a decision? If you're an animal, yeah, you don't really make decisions. Because there's no, they don't have that cognitive thing in, in their brain that kind of allows them to make decisions. They follow their, their instinct. We as humans are not that. We get the choice to follow God or to not follow him. In Deuteronomy 30, 15, it says, I lay before you de- life and death. What does it say? I'm going to read it properly. I was going to try and memorize it, but I'm not that smart. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. In Acts 17, it says, from one man, Adam, he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. This is Paul speaking in Athens, and he walks into Athens, and they had an altar to the unknown God, and he starts to preach the gospel of that place, saying, this is an altar to the unknown God, the God that you don't see, that you're crediting with something. I know that God. And I'm standing here today, if you've been following Jesus your whole life, or if this is your first time in church, or maybe you're a skeptic, or whatever it is, I know that God, and I know that He's real. The internal thing of God changing my heart, I couldn't have done that myself. There's a song that Martin Smith wrote, it says, what would I have done if it wasn't for Jesus? I'd be a mess, and I can tell you that everyone who's been following Jesus for more than a few years will be able to tell you the same thing, it's like, without Jesus, where would I be? without the people of God around me. There's a thing called the butterfly effect, and it's, it's a metaphor, so it doesn't, it's not actually true, but the whole idea behind the butterfly effect is that, that the flapping of a little butterfly's wings could eventually multiply be, to become a great storm that could go and like ravage nations. And I think they're trying to get, get you to, in, in understanding that is that your decisions have effect. Your lack of decision have, has effect. If you, if you, sometimes indecision is a decision in itself because you just let life happen to you. 
Some of us, it's harder to make decisions. Some of us are very decisive. I know that in leading a church and a group of people and anyone who has any form of leadership on them in, in their workplace knows that you can get a thing called decision fatigue. It's like when so many people are asking you so many questions and then you have to give them answers and it's, and it's not just answers that could be like, okay, go buy milk or go buy biscuits because those things just, I know when people ask me that in church, I'm like, do not ask me that, okay? I'm dealing with, like, should I divorce my wife or, or not? I mean, that's, like, that's somehow a little bit bigger, you know? Like, when you're dealing with these big things, you get decision fatigue. To the, sometimes at the end of the week, where I get to Starla, and she's like, what are we going to eat for dinner? I'm like, don't know, don't care. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, please don't choose this, 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 or this. Like, I, I, I want to still have a say in what I eat, and I still end up taking over anyway. But that's beside the point, is I'm an eater, and I'm a recovering eater. Um... <laughs> God gives us choice, and uh, he, he put it into our human DNA and nature to have choice. Free will. God, in his sovereignty, gave man free will. If I was God, don't you love those questions? If I was God, like, I, would, I don't know if I'd give us free will, because I've seen that man messes things up. But God wanted a people that are going to worship him out of their own hearts. He wanted a people that are just going to adore him, not because they have to, but because they choose to. So we have a choice today. Easter for me is about choice. Can we turn in our Bibles to John 20, verse 11? John 20, verse 11. And uh, just to give you a little bit of context, you have a thing called the Holy Week. So who grew up in an Anglican or a Catholic tradition? Do you want to raise your hand quickly? You would have probably celebrated something of this. And it starts on Sunday with Palm Sunday where Jesus is coming in triumphantly into Jerusalem. And they're laying down their palm branches. They take off their cloaks and they lay it down. And Jesus comes riding in a donkey. On, in a donkey. The God of this earth who created everything, you and me and the people that were all around him at that stage, comes into Jerusalem not in pomp and ceremony, but actually comes in riding on a donkey, and he comes as a king that is going to be sacrificed on behalf of our sins. And it gets, you have a few different celebrations in the week, then you have a thing, you have, you have a, something on Wednesday, which I forgot what it was, got it written down, Ash, is it Ash Wednesday? Okay, that's great. Ash Wednesday, then you have a thing on um, Thursday called Maundy Thursday. Okay, it's a strange name, it sounds like Monday, Thursday. But basically, you're having this moment where it's Jesus uh, celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples, and he's, and he's foretelling his death. He's saying, listen, tomorrow I am going to die. I, and this is my body that is going to literally be broken and ripped out of me. This is my blood that is going to be shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This, this is for, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is you, these 12 disciples, entering into a new covenant. He didn't choose the kings of the day. He chose ordinary people like you and me, and he says, and he, and he, and he gave the, the, this incredible truth of heaven, and he, he says, this is my body that's going to be broken. The amazing thing about Jesus is that he actually decides to spend his last dinner with someone who betrays him. If you had one last dinner, you would not be meeting with your enemy. Jesus is, is and I love, Jesus is just the man, he like, he even knows that he's going to betray him. And he's like, the guy's going to dip his finger in that bowl. That's him. And then if all, all the gospel is just like, they'll be like Judas, the betrayer. They just want to make sure that they know that it is the betrayer that did all these things. And Jesus is so, I believe in that moment. And people have said different things about that. Because obviously it was, it was part of the plan of God. 
his heart kind of, dis- Judas's heart disappeared and was more focused on money and wealth and all that other stuff before his focus on the kingdom of God. But I believe Jesus in that moment was maybe giving Judas a second chance, saying you don't have to be this. That's just my theory. So let's read. I'm going to start quickly with 20 verse 1, because you'll understand the context of why I'm saying that. Um, John 20 verse 1, it says, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Let's go to verse 11. Before we get there, you have... Peter and John, they come and she goes to before dark. She's the first one there. She runs off to Peter and John. They run back to the tomb. And you have this weird kind of thing where it says the disciple that Jesus loved ran ahead of Peter. They were also, the boys are competitive, so the one ran ahead of the other. And they get to this point and they say, well, okay, we're not sure what's happening here. So the two dudes go back behind. They go back home. And then in verse 11 it says, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped down to look in the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, which Ryan read earlier. One at the head and the other at the feet. They said to the woman, they said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they have taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they have put him. It's amazing that these angels don't answer her back. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you are seeking? God speaks to us in questions. Every key moment in my life, God asks me a question because he wants to see the response that's in my heart towards him. Supposing he was a gardener, she replied, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him. I will, t- I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Verse 17. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That is profound. In that moment, Jesus was saying, I died I resurrected from the dead, so you can now have the, a Father in heaven who loves you through no work of your own. Mary, verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced it to the disciples. She said, I've seen the Lord, and she told them what he had said to her. You have Mary, that's Mary Magdalene. Let's not forget who she is. She is, uh, the Bible recounts her in the different Gospels as the one who had been cured of seven demons. Jesus himself had delivered Mary Magdalene uh, of seven demons. There was, she was oppressed by the demonic. She was oppressed. How many of us, and if you look at different commentaries, they say that Mary Magdalene wasn't this poor kind of prostitute, which is kind of more tradition than it is biblical. She was actually a wealthy woman, but she was riddled with demonic power, demonic stuff in her life. And it says there were seven demons in her life. And if you look at any time you see seven in the Bible, the Bibles, they never waste one word. Whenever you see seven, it's complete. So it's almost like this thing of like there was a complete amount of demons inside of her. And Jesus comes and delivers her. And I cannot say that I, I, I believe that that's probably in some ways the people of Dubai. I'm not saying all of you sitting here, people outside the doors. Is that we are we wealthy, we're self-sufficient. But if we come down to it, we're broken. We're oppressed by the enemy. 
We have no way out. And Jesus comes and he delivers her and he saves her. I love the, the, the retelling here and it says that, that she got there early and she waited. And my thing there is that how hungry and desperate are we to actually find who Jesus is? Are we willing to be inconvenienced for him? Those of you who are seeking some form of truth, maybe you've gone around the world and you've tried different things and you've looked at different things. Have you really tried and just sat and waited for Jesus? Because I can tell you this right now, if it takes a month, a year, sometimes it takes quicker, maybe it takes a day, maybe it takes an hour, Jesus will meet you. And you have this woman that is desperate, and, and it comes to this point in this, this kind of conversation where the angels, uh, they say, they were sitting there, who are you looking for? And she turns around, and then she eventually, she sees a man that she doesn't know who it is, she thinks it's a gardener. And how many people, how many of us sometimes can have Jesus and God standing right in front of us? You can be in a meeting in church where one person is encountering Jesus, and you're standing there, I'm missing this thing completely. Sometimes Jesus can be standing right in front of you and you're missing it. And I I believe this is that we need to be able to see with spiritual eyes. We need to be able to see, truly see God. And it comes around and Jesus turns to her and he says, Mary. And he reveals himself to her. I want to say today that God wants to reveal himself to you. He knows your name. Go read Psalm 139. It says that his thoughts are constantly on us. And I preached about this a few weeks ago, but it says as, as many as the sand on, on, on the seashore, it's like there's this quintillion, quadrillion, I remember giving some massive amount. It says the thoughts that God has towards us is more than the sand of the seashore. If you're thinking, is God thinking about me right now? Yes, he is. Right now he's thinking about you. I don't know how he does it in his omnipotence and his, his sovereignty and who he is in, in God, who, his God, he can do whatever he wants, but he is thinking about you. He's thinking that he cares about your family. He cares if your children are going through tough times. He cares that they they may be bullied at school. He cares that that your job is in a tough place. He he cares about those things. He's not a God that is far off, that is distant. He turns around to to Mary and he says her name. What an incredible, that for me is Easter. That God died on the cross, thought of all of us. He carried the weight of the, the the sin of the world on himself, yours and mine, and he died in our place, rose again on the third day, defeated death in our place, so he could call our name Mary. And you can insert your own name there. He gives her identity, he calls her out, he gives her purpose. Here you have a woman who had seven demons in her, and not only did she have seven demons, she was a woman. Women in those times were second class citizens. All the ladies here are going, boo. It's true. It was, and there's obviously parts of the world where women still are considered second-class citizens. But Jesus comes and he lifts women up. He says, I've created man and woman in my image. And he chooses in his way, in his sovereignty, in his rule of the earth, that the first person to ever preach the gospel was a woman. And he flips everything on his head. In those days, men would not listen to women. Jesus comes and he says, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers that I'm here. Incredible. God is just, uh, he's, he just flips everything on his head. And I think the amazing thing for me is that Jesus could have gone back into the praetorium and spoken to Pontius Pilate and said, I told you so. I told you I have no authority other than what's given to you. I, I, he could have gone back to the, the high priest and said, I told you so. Here I am risen from the dead. 
I defeated death. I defeated everything and I'm back. He didn't. He goes to the ones that he's his disciples and the ones that are seeking after him. We, for me, if anything, Easter is about having a seeking heart. It's about saying, God, I, I choose. I want to find you. I seek you with my whole heart. So there's incredible evidence for Jesus. Obviously, Mary had him physically in front of him. Doubting Thomas had him physically in front of him. For those of you who are doubters among, among us, there's incredible books, Josh McDowell, um, Lee Strobel, that they speak about the validity of who Jesus is, that he wasn't just some this kind of historical thing that happened, that it was actually verifiable evidence that Jesus not only lived, but, but rose from the dead. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, spoke about Jesus and said, there was a man that they called Jesus, and then he puts in brackets, I don't know if they had brackets in those days, but he was kind of saying, if we can even call him a man. That was a Jewish historian. So let's just start out. We all know who Alexander the Great is, am I right? Yes? Okay, I don't know what, what, what schools we went to, but we learned it about it in history. Uh, and uh, there's some incredible things that he did. It says that he conquered the known world by the age of 30. Yes, those in the first meeting know that. Uh, he was treated by, come on guys, Aristotle. Okay. Only reason I know this is because I, I studied it. There we go. He died from drinking a bowl of wine, which is, okay, there was other stuff that was wrong with him, but apparently that's how he died. And then after that, he was, he was put in a vat of honey to preserve him. And uh, they say that he never lost a single military campaign, I think in between 15 and 18 years or something like that, of him fighting. So it must have been, started at 15, so I don't know if that's true. But anyway, he never won, he never lost one battle. And now if we had to look at that, we'd say, okay, well, that's, that's historical facts. You go to university, you learn about how the, there was just the, the, the Hellenistic kind of rule that, that the Greeks took over, and it was Alexander the Great that spearheaded that, that whole thing. And that only came from two two sources. I was going to say resources. It only came from two sources. I'm going to get these names right. Plutarch and Arian. But now get this. It was only written about him 400 years after it actually happened. But yet we take that as absolute historical fact. And there's lists of these. There's, uh, there's, there's Pliny the Elder. There's all these people that wrote these incredible works. But it was written years and years after the event actually happened. So I'm going to just show you Julius Caesar and the Gallic Wars. So you had the author Julius Caesar, which I believe, or Caesar. You had the Gallic Wars. It was written around 100 to 44 BC, so the first manuscript. And if we think about history, history works that it's written down, then it's written down again, then it's passed on. The earliest manuscript that is available today about the, the Gallic Wars, which is, this, again, in the history books, you go read on Wikipedia, it's, it's clear. It's, it's happened. It's a real thing that happened. They fought against obelix and asterisks. Okay. Um, <laughs> That the earliest manuscript that they could find was at the, from the 9th century, which is 950 years after the event. And they only had 10 of the manuscripts. Now that's, so but yet, you sit in universities, you sit at the highest levels, and they say, well, that's a verifiable fact. We can trust that. But then let's go to the New Testament documents. You have the Bible, the New Testament, written in Greek. It was written 50 to 100 years AD, which would have been probably like 20 to 40 years after Jesus had res resurrected from the dead. The earliest manuscripts that, that are now available, are, uh, that we can actually verify and you can see, is from AD 30. So the gap 
is around 50 years, but this is where it gets mind-blowing, that they've got 5,366 possibly more manuscripts. And if you go do a study on it, and guys have literally poured their lives in, people who doubted their faith, doubted the faith of Christianity, Christianity and the validity of the resurrection, actually went and studied these things and became believers themselves, is that it's 5,366 documents with an accuracy of 99%. That it's a verifiable, solid document. They say the book of Luke is one of the, 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 the most accurate documents from antiquity. That you can go look at that and say that this, because when you read the book of Luke, it's not written like a fairy tale, like a fable. It's written in the, in the year of Tiberius, in the year of this. It, it gives exact facts, exact dates, and exact times of when this all happened, which is incredible. So we can place our faith there. You have the book of James, which is Jesus' brother. So... Let's just say Warren was Jesus, my friend Warren there. And uh, I know his brother, Travis. And Travis would tell you right now that, that, uh, that Warren is not the son of God. He knows all of his uh, negative stuff. He knows all the stuff that he's got up to. And can, I t- can we say that the, the book of James speaks about the resurrected Christ, speaks about Jesus being God, speaks about how we need to follow him. And it's Jesus' brother. And, and the only, ways and, only way that that can be verified is that if Jesus was actually resurrected from the dead. Because he could have just been this kind of prophet that performed miracles, but then he died. But the fact that he got resurrected from the dead, that, that James became one of the leaders in the early church, was Jesus' brother, which is just an incredible, incredible thing. The other evidence is his disciples, those who followed him. So they would have walked with them. They say that 11 out of the 12 disciples were martyred. They tried to martyr John. They boiled him in oil. They eventually exiled him to the, the, the Isle of Patmos where he wrote Revelation. Why would the early disciples die for something that was all fake? Because if this is all fake, then someone has been really smart about sorting this thing out. It's Jesus is real. Jesus is alive. He, he is risen from the dead. He's, he's, we, can, we can approach him. We can have full confidence, not only from a scriptural and a textual thing, but from a spiritual side to say, Jesus, I need you. We, we have Jesus. He is alive. What an incredible truth. We, we have verifiable documents more than any other religion, I can tell you that, about the truth of Jesus is. I'll tell you the truth of who Jesus is. So if we have this evidence in a courtroom, I know where I would choose because I've already chosen him. He's real. He's changed my heart. You should have seen me before Jesus. I was ugly. <laughs> you know when you're 14 or 13, that awkward phase? Any dude doesn't look great there. It's like my, my, I'm literally my face is a shape of an alien. I don't know. It was like... Was this? There was like thing. My ears were bigger than everything else. My nose had been broken. It was out of proportion. It was just, anyway. Jesus is alive. So the resurrection shows us four things, and then we're going to end. Number one, it showed that the revolution had begun. It shows that the revolution had begun. So so often at Easter, what is preached to us, which is absolute truth, is that Jesus defeated death and sin. On the cross, if we put our faith in him, we, have, we get credited with his righteousness. And now that is all true. But in the Jewish mindset, they were looking for a savior. They were looking for someone to come and overthrow the government. 
So even when, uh, when Jesus, his disciples are talking to him, he says, God, when are you going to come and overthrow the government? And Jesus says, it's not like that. I've got a, I've got a new rule, a new, a new reign, a, a government of love. And N.T. Wright writes this. He says, Jesus dying, on the, Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead showed the result is that the powers that have locked the world in corruption, decay, and death are now overthrown. Jesus came and he overthrew death. He killed death. He died on the cross in our place, but he also, he, 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 he this, sorry, I can't get this out of my, mind, my, my mouth properly. He disarmed the powers and principalities as he died on the cross for us. Jesus started the ultimate revolution. If you look at every revolution there's been in history, the French Revolution, the people rise up, they overthrow the governments, and then the people took over. Jesus comes and he overthrows an oppressive government. This sin, the things we almost, when you start to think about stories like with, uh, with Hitler and mass murders and all of these things, it's like that's more than human wickedness. There's something else that's at play there. Jesus came and overthrew that. Second thing, it shows that the kingdom of God has been launched on earth. There's a fulfillment of prophecies. If you want to go, another thing to why we believe in the Bible is that 700 years before Jesus came, died on the cross for us, Isaiah and Psalms clearly spoke about what he's going to walk through. Isaiah 53, Stala wrote, which in the Jewish tradition is like one of the forbidden scriptures you don't read because it actually points so clearly to Jesus Christ that there's no other way but Jesus. So I look at it like this, and those of you who know something about World War II history is that you had D-Day and then you had the end of the war, is that on D-Day there was the decisive victory by the Allied forces over the Germans. But then it took a while for it to kind of unroll again that the war had actually been won. And I believe that's the time we're living in right now. Jesus made a decisive victory at the cross. He defeated death as he rose again, but we're living in this in-between state. And, we, and we're seeing moments of victory, but we're also seeing moments of, 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 of failure. And then we see moments of victories because we're living in this in-between state that as we begin to proclaim the gospel across the earth, the end will come. The amazing thing is number three is that we, it shows that we get to be a part of the story. That comes back to the plan of mankind. God's plan over Adam and Eve was to extend Eden across the earth. Man messes up. God says, okay, cool, I'm going to try something else. I'm going to raise up the people of Israel. He chooses one man, Abraham. He raises up the people of Israel. He says, now you're going to take my shalom peace across the earth. They keep messing up. They're going to exile. Then he says, okay, the only way this is going to happen is if I send my only son. And Jesus comes, dies on the cross, lives a perfect life for us. If we put our faith in him, we get absolutely cleansed, clean, so we can be part of the story. We can be part of renewing the earth. We can be part of changing the earth. And now what that does is it gives you absolute purpose every day. So whether you're cabin crew, whether you work in construction, whether you are a graphic designer, it doesn't matter because if you have got your eyes focused on Jesus and you, and you, and you want to change the earth, you're going to be part of, of the solution and not part of the problem. And we get to partner with God to change the earth, which is just incredible. God takes a woman like Mary, full of demons, and she becomes a, a proclaimer of the gospel. God takes a, a, someone like me, who had his own issues, and uh, was, had massive fear of man, massive things that are just hereditary stuff in my life, and he says, I'm going to use you because you surrender your heart to me. God wants to use us, despite us. Number four, 
and this is the final point, it shows that there's hope for the future. Let's read Revelation 21, end of the Bible. Revelation 21 verse 1, this is John writing, this is, this is post him being boiled in oil, he's in exile to the island of Patmos, and they said, he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the, and the sea was no more. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. That is God's plan. It started in Eden, man messed up, and God's going to rectify everything. And he's already started through Jesus Christ. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Someone says that we, we like a burp in eternity. We get this earth suit and it lasts 60, 70, 80 years. And then we step into eternity. There's, there's a day coming that we can look forward to in hope. If we've put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, we've put our faith in him that we're going to say, God, I'm going to follow you with my whole heart. So he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. What an incredible thing we get to look forward to. We get to look forward to the day when Jesus is going to rule and reign. And he's going to be the best king we've ever seen. He's going to be incredibly gracious, kind. It says that the lion will sit with the lamb. There's just going to be this, that heaven and earth again are going to be one in, in, in completeness. And we're going to be able to commune with God. There's just going to be this incredible, a new heaven, a new earth where there's going to be no pain. That is what we have to look forward to. And can I say that it only, we can only look forward to that as if, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Jesus himself says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And it's amazing because so so many people hate the exclusivity of that statement. And they hate that churches preach the exclusivity of that statement. And I don't think it's exclusive. I think it's Jesus saying, I'm the way. Everyone's invited. And you can come and join. It's just simply, I believe in you. I believe that you're real. And if, if you struggle around that thing, I can tell you right now, from today, go search it out. Don't put your own blinkers on about uh, your perception of who God is, what the, the, the decisions you've made in your mind about who God is. Go and search it out. Because I can tell you right now, you're going to find a Savior at the end. And you're going to find a resurrected King at the end. Let's pray.